You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and this week is an Indie Talk Week, and that means I have my good friend and co-founder, Nicholas Bugs, with me on the call. Nick, say hello. What's up, folks? It's good to be back. Yes, it is, and back in more ways than one, I had my birthday this weekend, Nick, and took a little trip to Washington, D.C., to be part of the Get Your Knee Off My Neck March. Uh, this That was what it was titled this year, but they have this, the National Action Network has this march every year. Of course, it was a little bit heightened this year because it's an election year, and then uh, you just had the Jacob Blake shooting as well before that. So it was, it was quite a time. There were at least 50,000 people there, just a sea of people. And it was fascinating to sort of blend birthday celebrations. So like, you know, nice dinners and friends and family. My sister Angie came down and was with me as well Um, to sort of blend that with also the March was, was great. And then uh, the mobs there are real. And I was actually able to see a couple of them in, in action. Define that for the people though, right? Like, so when you say mob, what do you mean? Yeah, so there, there, there are the protesters that march. So you, we march from the Washington Monument to the Martin Luther King Jr. Monument. Um, and that was fine. Then, now, the interesting thing about that is, is that you have a lot of chanting, and like you repeat chants, and all of those chants were led by young girls. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, but listen, all right, so yeah. I'm picking up what you're laying down because mm-hmm. we've, you know, of course, had some conversations, but you just said young girls. You didn't say young women. Yeah, one of the, one of the people, one of the girls was, could not have been more than 13, and she had a megaphone, and she was leading. It's fascinating. She was leading a crowd of tens of thousands of people in, in a chant, and there were these different types of sort of chant leaders dispersed amongst the large crowd. So you maybe had 20 people doing it and I didn't see any of them that were over what I would say would be 19 years old. Wow. Yeah. It's so incredible. Just fascinating to think about that. Now to your question, the mob, uh, they're more aggressive, but more aggressive. What? Cause the thing that I seem to glean from, you know, kind of some of your descriptions of the mob and, and, you know, when I watch some of these videos on, mm-hmm. you know, social or on TV or whatever, uh, there's this likely a pretty clear distinction between the mob or the mobs and the protesters, right? Yeah. They're not one and the same, right? No, not, not at all. Uh, they could be though. They could be like, so you could have people that were in the mob that also went to that that March that was organized by the national action network. So you you could have like two things could be true. It's just that when they're, they're in the group, the small groups, the small mobs, then they take on a different characteristic. 
for sure. You see a lot less African-Americans, black people in the mobs. Um, so that's one distinction. The other distinction is the mobs are very young, whereas the protesters were, were ranged in age all over, right? Um, so that was a, a key difference as well. The mobs are all pretty young, but they're, but they're very aggressive. Uh, <laughs> I was at Equinox eating and behind me, I saw, you know, you could see the mob just marching down the street and they were harassing every person <laughs> that came out of the Republican national convention, just one by one. And, um, and it's just a small group. And the most fascinating thing about them is that they're so organized and so well trained and they're and they're everywhere they need to be on time. Like they know when stuff is happening. They know when thing, people are going to walk out. They know wh- where they were going to walk out at. They knew how to be aggressive without necessarily hitting anybody. Uh, they, they knew how to, you know, instill intimidation and fear, make people uncomfortable. Uh, it's, it's totally different. Whereas the protesters, they're just protesting almost like a, a sit in, right. Or, yeah. or let's say you were going to fast. It, it almost had that vibe to it where you were going to do something in protest of some wrongdoing that's happening in the world, but it's a more of like a Gandhi-ish Martin Luther King approach, junior yeah, approach. It's, it's the true intent of a march, right? Like it's not a fight. It's not necessarily a confrontation. The, the intent of the march is supposed to be that all of the people marching are doing so in solidarity, right, with the cause and with one another. Everything else is supposed to be you – know, you're basically supposed to have blinders on. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Whereas in the, in the sort of mobs that were there, it was more Malcolm X. <laughs> it was more any means nece- by any means necessary. So yeah, but you know, I, I'd have to pull that one back because I know that the Malcolm said that, but Malcolm would say that under duress, right? Mm-hmm. Under a threat, he was willing to you know save himself and his family under any means necessary. But he was not, um, I would say, a physical agitator in that way. You know, so I would I think- agree. I would agree with you. Yeah, so the the mob mentality is definitely something else, and like you said, it's um, I I think it has an, an, an entirely different intent altogether, and I think they're just kind of like leeches. They leech on to legitimate events like a march or some sort of protest. They leech onto it and basically leverage that for some level of protection, and then they just they jump off and do what they had actually intended to do. And then it just makes it so much easier for them if they do need to run, then they just hide among the masses. You know, it's an unfortunate situation, you know, but uh, that's how I look at them. I'm like, those mobs are like leeches. It was amazing yeah. to see. It, it was. Right. Uh, gotcha. So I'm glad I made it out there because I think sometimes, Nick, you have to get away from TV and social media and the Internet and actually go experience something for yourself in one of the major cities where something is happening. And then you can assess it from an honest in first person viewpoint instead of have someone else tell the story to you. So a little housekeeping. We had a wonderful interview last week with uh, Derek Purvis and he made a few comments on our podcast that got some attention. Um, and we had the questions asked a couple of questions asked and we want to follow up with them, uh, on this uh, episode. So if you haven't listened to the Derek, Derek Purvis interview, please do. Uh, it's really fantastic. I thought it was, uh, one of the most valuable, podcast we've done for 
indie creatives and indie filmmakers to date. But uh, some of the questions that came out were, one was about foreign pre-sales. Derek talked a lot about soft dollars and foreign pre-sales. And a lot of filmmakers uh, believe that foreign pre-sales just really aren't a thing anymore. They aren't viable for independent filmmakers. And uh, I asked Derek directly about this. And, and he said, well, if they're talking about trying to get foreign pre-sales and they don't have a great cast and a great story, then yeah, they're right. It's not viable for independent filmmakers. And Nick, I think this is something that we've talked about uh, ad nauseum, right? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things with the farm pre-sales, you know, that we've kind of been witness to is that, you know, you mentioned it was, you know, great cast and, and, you know, I'm not going to say they're not great, but in some respects, farm pre-sales are tied to genre and basically when you say great cast is recognizable talent. Correct. Right. It's like, you know, I can't really vouch for the past 10 years worth of Steven Seagal movies. You know, I, I, I love this stuff when I was a kid, Mark for death is one of my favorite films, you know, like, <laughs> you know, under siege, you know, was one of my favorites at the time, but like past 10 years, Steven Seagal, I don't know, but, I bet you if you put his name in a film, you'll get farm pre-sales. You put Van Damme's name in a film, you're going to get farm pre-sales, right? So, yeah, it is legitimate. It's a thing. But is it a thing for you? Right? Is it a thing for your film? Is it a thing for – and I'm going to say your film. Is it a thing for your project, right? Because when I say project, I include, you know, how did you package it? You know, did you package it with a a known named actor or actress, you know, who's – you know, again, not just known here, you know, but is something that would actually sell internationally? Uh, is the content that you're selling something that's acceptable internationally? Because, you know, not all the content we make over here, are they going to take somewhere else? Russia ain't taking everything you do, right? So, you know, China's not taking everything you do. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's definitely viable, but just your package has to be prepared for that market. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you also have to know the steps to get there. Right. And I think that's sometimes is what's missing. There's a chasm in knowledge from the indie producer to, to getting to the a place of, of foreign pre-sales uh, in, in general. Now we know that every actor has a number score from one to 10 associated with that actor. And the higher the number, the more foreign pre-sales you can ask for in a given market. And we've been given those that information and those spreadsheets, so we understand how that works. And again, that's why we say it's not necessarily your cast, but it's recognizable to that market cast. That's right. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, and this can never be underrated. You know, story has to be there. It has to be great. It has to be you know wonderful. And there's so many instances of this around because I was talking to a friend of the podcast, Maki Dapp, the other day about this very thing. And it, it, there's a lot of proof out there just in the wild that shows that it's not really a cast thing. It's a, it's a story thing. But the, and, and a great story will make you know, a cast member a star. You don't have to look any further than like Game of Thrones. No one knew who any of those people were, really. Right. And now you've got people naming their babies Khaleesi, you know, after. (laughs) So, so I think uh, Amelia Clark's career was kind of made by Game of Thrones, not the other way around. And that's proof that story is king. But there's this sort of knock on effect where you say, well, then how come everybody, you know, how come I can't sell my movie then? Or how come 
everyone rejects me because my cast isn't good enough. Well, I would say one, you probably structured your film wrong financially, but two, uh, you, you know, you structured it in a way where the market is telling you what your film's worth instead of you telling the market what your film's worth. And we've talked about that in the past, but, um, you know, secondarily, I think what really happens is, is to get debt equity or debt financing, meaning if some institution is going to lend you money, they lend based on the names they know. And they're just bankers, right? So they're, they're not film people. They're, some of them are, are really versed in film, like an entertainment lawyer would be or an entertainment banker is. I, don't get me wrong. I'm not insulting anyone. I'm simply saying that cast is going to move the needle uh, with that. We've seen uh, financing happening simply happen before, simply by getting the right actress in the room with that financer or that financier. So uh, I think to that degree, Nick, that's, that's why the, the, the cast thing sticks around. Um, not just not recognizable cast. We're just saying that whole, I need a, a great a level or a list actor or in, in my film. I think it has to do with debt financing, Nick. Yeah, but I I think I'm also looking at the you know the package, right? So, you know, we've already mentioned you know these cast, and you mentioned the story, and I mentioned genre. Like all of those things are important, you know, when you're looking for well any kind of sales, but when you're looking for foreign pre-sales, all of those things are important. And then you have to think about you know when you say foreign, you know that's just that doesn't mean like your film or your content or your, your package is viable again in every territory outside of the U S right. So there's certain places that'll be more amenable to that type of content that you're making certain places just won't want to want, you know, that stuff at all. So it's like, you know, that's why I think that you're, you have your, you know, your Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, even Mike Tyson can likely sell out in China. Right. Right. It's these action packed films with recognizable faces. You know, is the story great? Uh, depends on your definition of greatness. Right. right. It's like one of the things that I've learned about with martial arts films, especially the ones that do very well uh, in China, are the ones that they actually have underlying themes from Chinese culture. So you may not recognize it on its face as an American, but the Chinese and maybe even the Japanese and different, you know, depending on what that underlying culture is, they'll recognize it. And you'll notice a lot of films that have, um, you know, one of the things with the Avengers, for example, is just uh, the idea of the elements. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. big. in I know at a minimum, you know, Chinese culture. Right. So if you have this idea of, um, of the elements showing up and, and different things are possible based off of the different elements, you have the idea of, of master and student, you know, that those types of things that come through. There's a lot of cultural things that you can put into a film that will enable you to sell in foreign markets. And But those are the types of things that you have to think about. You know, this isn't just, you know, I, I wrote a good story. I want to sell it. No, there's it's a serious business, right? There's a science in addition to the art that goes into doing this stuff and all the things we mentioned. So we just mentioned, you know, um, genre, cast, story, cultural references, you know, uh, country, you know, that you're going to, there's specific things that they like. There's certain things that they will not allow, you know, uh, there's a lot of elements to it. The production value, right. You talk about game of Thrones, 
come on, dude. You know, that thing's so set apart from so many other things just on production value alone, you know, that, um, that will help it sell that type of thing, sell in other places. So yeah, there's, there's a package there that you need to put together. And, you know, to the point of the independent filmmaker, maybe most of them, you know, I don't want to put a percentage of it on it to be arbitrary, but maybe most of them don't have a viable package uh, for farm pre-sales. Yeah. And it's, it's very likely that they don't. And, and just one caveat on game of Thrones, uh, you talk about, you know, season seven of game of Thrones versus season one, you know, season one didn't have those kind of budgets. They didn't know what they had on their hands. Right. right. So you can see a, a very clear difference between the production values of season one and then the final season. So, once something becomes a hit, then then more investment dollars get poured into it. But it starts with a great premise and, and a great story. And look, the, the the thing to do maybe if you're if you want to test it out as a indie creator is when you make your film, go go get a young, hungry um, sales agent. You know, if you you can go to the experienced ones, but you know they're going to pay a lot for that. You can get someone who needs to make a name in the business and then they, they can take it and they're going to know all the markets for you. They're going to know the market minimums. They're going to know how certain actors play in foreign markets and what kind of stories work. I can and look, I have firsthand experience with this because as you know, I've said before, I'm, I'm half German and I've got family that still lives in Germany and the movies they love from America. They love movies by the way. And it's all action movies. <laughs> any, yep. any, anything with Bruce Willis in it, anything with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it, anything with uh, Sylvester Stallone, anything with Jean-Claude Van Damme, as you mentioned, they're going to watch it. Uh, that's my family. I know that's, that's my experience. It doesn't make it true. But I'm just saying that having been in Germany and seen what people like, that's, that's way up there, that genre. So yeah, for sure. So second thing is this, organization named the Nashville Filmmakers Guild. And this, as far as I know, is an organization that is now defunct. But uh, Derek was part of it, and they had a contest where screenwriters, I believe it's only screenwriters, well, I guess you could be a filmmaker too. So screenwriters and filmmakers would enter by paying $99, and then the, and then the organization promised they, they would take the winning screenplay and make it into a major motion picture. That's a pretty big, you know, that's a pretty big promise. And yeah. they didn't provide any details in between. I think that was a mistake. So I talked to Derek about that and said, Hey, what was up with that? And I actually met Derek at one of these events, Nick, uh, at the Hutton hotel where, uh, they were having sort of a gala where they're maybe promoting the contest itself. And uh, I asked Derek about it because um, our friends, John August and Craig Mazin over at Script Notes, really tore into uh, Bobby Marco, who I think is the head of the National Filmmakers Guild or what used to be that, and Derek Purvis by name, who we interviewed last week uh, on their podcast. So we love John and we love Craig. And uh, I would say I went to the school of Script Notes. So I, I think... Um, it was really eye opening to read those transcripts and try to understand it. So I called Derek and asked about it and he said, he was very contrite. He said, those guys are legitimate. They are free to say what they have to say. 
Um, they never called me to verify anything on that. I never heard from them at least if, if they did try to call, he never got it. Um, but he gave me some information about it. He said, uh, they had internal turmoil. The, the whole thing imploded and he was really there just to, uh, provide the foreign pre-sales we just talked about in the previous part of this conversation. And I think that he probably should have, and Bobby probably should have, let the 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 people who entered the contest know the details of how the movie gets made. And I think that would have cleared it up. I think Bobby also did a disservice to Derek and to everyone involved by sort of over pronouncing his importance in Hollywood and the things he's done. Uh, I think at the time of, of the script notes recording, he had done some short films. So I don't think that's the same as saying you're, a Hollywood producer that's produced films. And I think he was using a little bit of hyperbole there. So I think that's a problem. Uh, I asked Derek again about, uh, or I asked Derek, you know, once the, the organization imploded, did you give everyone their money back that, that entered? And what he said to me was, well, no one entered. <laughs> we didn't receive one entry for it. There was no money to give back because we never received one screenplay for the contest. And you know, once the thing blew up, he was out and uh, didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So I think that Derek might've gotten lumped in with the whole situation because his name was on the website, but uh, in his, in his uh, estimation, he was simply there to help a friend out and uh, provide uh, the, the ability to pre-fund the winning script through, through his knowledge and, and through his connections. And, and if you listen to the podcast, that's a big part of who he is. You know, he was, he EP, the kids are all right. It was one of the EPs on that. He, uh, his mentor is Michael Bassick, who taught him how to financially structure movies and, and he calls him his mentor. So I think Derek was brought in for the purpose of ensuring that the film could find funding. Nick, do you have anything on that? Yeah, it's, um, it's unfortunate. You know, then, you know, Derek kind of got caught up in, you know, not, not the guild itself. I mean, I, I don't have anything bad to say about it. You know, I don't know enough about, you know, the intentions of the group, you know, again, on its surface, it looks like, you know, as a five, one, three C, you know, they were looking to do some things that were, you know, that were good for the community, you know, and even offered some opportunities for people to, to give for free, you know, not everything, uh, cost something, um, in order for people to support the filmmaking community. So there's, there's likely a lot of good in it, but I think, you know, the main thing is that there's, you know, a pretty significant lesson in all this. And it's a lesson that, you know, we've also had to learn, um, or we've, we've learned the hard way as well, where, you know, some of the things that, that come up that people are offering, you know, it sounds good on the surface. It looks, looks very nice. Um, but it doesn't have enough detail to really provide the community with merit. And as soon as you don't provide enough detail, that is a red flag, right? And the challenge with the red flags is that because we know this is a very close knit community, people are going to talk I and mean, we see it now, right? We're talking about John August and Craig Mazin talking about Derek Purvis. Like they don't know him. Right. Right. Um, but it, that's what the part of the being in the community is also looking out 
for your community members. And right. And, and as I, you know, think about what they said in, in the, in the podcast, you know, there's some pretty damning statements, you know, but part of me believes that it's not actually pointed at the national filmmakers guild or at Derek or at anyone else individually. It's more like it's pointed at things like this, right? Things, right? things where, where there's basic, a big promise if you pay. Right. And without, not necessarily without the intention of fulfilling the promise is without being forthcoming about how you intend to do it in a way that it gives people confidence that you're going to actually do the thing. Right. Right. Like that's, that's the challenge there. And I think that, you know, as a lesson learned for anybody who's thinking about putting an event together, who's thinking about putting a, a group or a community together or whatever it is you're doing in, in filmmaking. Yeah. If you're going to make any kind of promises about what you're going to do with someone's creative, you got to tell them how you're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what are the connections? What is the network? What is the process? And also, um, you might guarantee making something, right? And I think the major major motion picture was likely a fail, mm -hmm. right? You could make it a motion picture. That's true. That's legit. Yeah. Um, but then your disclaimers need to be heavy, right? They need to be thorough what, what, what about deal? the the business that you're in, <laughs> right? And you know, like we're not guaranteeing you success in the sale of the film, though you could potentially guarantee success in the making. And, of and this the goes film, back to right? the, the structure point that Derek makes on the podcast, which is that in this instance, you wouldn't have to necessarily go through an indie film sales process um, because the way he structures films, there's, there's almost zero equity in it. So, you know, the film is a go, it's a green light from, before, you know, from pre-pro and that yep. that's, that's the idea. But I think a, the huge mistake that that Bobby Marco and and the the folks at the guild and potentially Derek as well did is they used puffery in film, and film is already an industry where everything is shrouded. People are on high alert for frauds, and you can still get taken in by a fraud, and you can still lose friendships even if you had nothing to do with anything. Like we we had filmmakers that were wary of us at at one point because we were affiliated with one one type of person or this, this one individual. And we're like, Oh, we think he's a dickhead too. Like, like, <laughs> like, you know, don't lump us in. Like, look, you know, we, we did a thing with them for a very you know specific purpose. And you can ask us about it anytime, but we're not affiliated with them at all. And so it's, it's easy to get fooled. And, and the reason people hate is because no one wants to feel that way. You feel dumb. You don't have to be dumb to be taken in by uh, someone who, um, is using, you know, who's either an out and out shark, or I think someone like the guild and like Bobby Marco, who really are guilty of puffery. <laughs> like you're going to have a major motion. We'll make it into a major motion picture. Like you're like selling, but you're in the wrong and you're tone deaf to the industry. You shouldn't sell that right. way yeah. uh, into, it's like, you'll see like the, the final draft, the big break contest. And it's like, it's so, it's sort of tone deaf. It's a, it's a big, fat, juicy sales pitch to an industry that doesn't care for that. Right. It, and doesn't believe in that. And, and I think that contest has been around for a while. It has some legitimacy to it. It obviously has winners that get paid and do things, but I like the way blacklist does it. They don't make you any promises. 
You pay to go in. If you get picked, there's a good chance your film's going to get made or optioned. Like, like the proof is literally in the pudding for them. And, and right, I love, yeah. I love the way they do it. So I hope that clears up that, uh, with, with Derek Purvis, I think talking to him so often and, and over the last two weeks, um, in preparation and after the podcast, he's, he's a contrite guy that truly loves film and knows film history and wants to make movies and loves being a part of this community. So, uh, if you have any more feedback on the Derek Purvis interview, please send it to us at contact at bonsai.film as usual, and we'll jump on it and we'll answer more of your questions. So we appreciate the feedback. This is also Emmy awards time, Nick, to jump into our, our, our next thing. It feels like maybe, Things are get- when you see an award show, like I think last night was the VMAs, and now we're we're heading into Emmy nominations. It's like, okay, maybe things are going back to the way they were. You know, the theaters are slightly open, <laughs> right? You can yeah, slightly, you can go yeah. see Tenet. Uh, we have award shows. Uh, I think they're all doing it the PC way, but. Uh, sports are slowly, surely all coming back. And, uh, it's good to see these nominations out there. You're not a huge watcher of shows, but I have to give, uh, some props to, I think the shows that got the most uh, nominations. So Ozark on Netflix is one succession from HBO is another. And then the morning show on Apple TV plus is, is, is a third one I wanted to, to earmark. Now of those three, now I love all three of them of those three. I have to tell you the one I miss the most, the one I miss. say, this is how I judge it. It's emotional. <laughs> the one I miss the most Nick, is succession, man. Succession. Hmm. Now, if I were going to, to twist your arm and say, watch a show, <laughs> I would tell you to watch succession. It's gotcha. impossible not to enjoy this. Jeremy Strong is unbelievable. He's a great, great actor. Like, uh, I think on the surface you see other names, like Kieran Calkin, and the, um, and you say, okay, well, that's what the show's going to be about. No, no, no. Jeremy Strong, so so good in this. The show is funny while being dramatic. And that is such a hard line to walk because um, if it gets too funny, then you don't think the characters are really serious. So you don't take the stakes as high as you should. Right. And if it's too serious, then it gets dark and it becomes something else. But this, this show, there's, there's just nothing like it. And and I, I have damned COVID-19 for taking succession away from the world and from myself for so long. So uh, of those three, I'm wishing Succession the most luck. The the show I didn't see nominations for, and I would love to be corrected on this if I'm wrong, if I, if I have it mixed up. There's a show on FX and on Hulu called Dave that stars Little Dicky, and that show is unbelievable. That Yeah, I got to check that one out. I was just telling my wife about that the other day, and she was like, what's, the, what's Dave? And I was like, well, I, I can't tell her. Well, that's Little Dicky because she doesn't know who Little Dicky is. But then... And I remember at one point I played her like, you know, one of the tracks and I played her one of the videos and I was like trying to think, how do I explain this to her? Uh, Babes, uh, that's brain got a poop. That's him. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) I I love, I love little Dickie. I love, uh, his hustle. I love his entrepreneurship. 
I love his show. He's a natural on the show. I don't know who taught him how to act or all that, but he's funny. He's good. Like, you know, like it wasn't Maybelline. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what it is. It has to, you know, it's funny how just sort of talent is talent across the board. Somebody that's good at something is just going to be good at sort of all the factions of that thing they do. Uh, The only thing I don't like about little Dicky is his name, little Dicky, because I think it's, I think it's highly, um, you know, it's it's purposely cheesy and it's designed to get attention, and it worked. But now, as you go into like being Dave on this show, and then also being a more like successful hip hop artist, you don't want your name to be Little Dicky because Little Dicky is like a parody. It's almost like he's trying to be Weird Al Yankovic, and but he's a legitimate rapper. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But you know, it worked. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, like because there's a shtick. Yeah, you to can't it. knock the outcome. That's not it. Yeah. But but you can't knock Weird Al's yeah. outcome either. I'm just saying, Weird Al to be right. Weird Al has forfeited his ability to be like to sing you a love song legitimately, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I like, got you. Little like Weird Al can't be heartbroken, and Little Dicky probably can't let out a song that Macklemore would let out, for example. Right. Um, yeah. Or Mac Miller. Some other, I don't know why I'm picking only white rappers, but you get my point. Um, <laughs> I get it. He should probably change his name. So that's the Emmy Awards. I'm looking forward to that. And that just means more award seasons to come. That means um, more shows to come. And we know that because today the P, the Producers Guild of America released their back to set guidelines from a producer's view, it says. And we took a look at that. And Nick, it's 56 pages long. What do you make of that? <laughs> uh, it has to be man you know it's like the one that uh we were looking at i think it was from the dga and the teamsters um i think it was 36 pages long you know so it's just yeah the joint report of the dga sag after iatsi and teamsters committees for COVID 19 safety guidelines is 36 pages and it's just because they literally cover every last thing to almost eliminate the idea of liability on anyone's part. I mean, it gets like, I I just think about some of the stuff that they have to do, like, um, like walkie talkies, you know, you want to have people have walkie talkies Well, the walkie talkies have batteries, right. That are rechargeable. What if you're going to change the battery in a walkie talkie, you got to sanitize it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, we we never would have thought of that. You know what I'm saying? Like you never would have gotten down to that level. Like it says this walkies and PLs should be disinfected and individually bagged and hand to the user. Don't share walkie talkies. Replacement batteries must be disinfected between uses, bagged and handed to crew as needed. Check this one out. This this one that that got me was what's in the whole walkie talkie headset area. Headsets should be provided to enable quiet, detailed conversation on set mm. without the need for close contact or a huddle. No whispering, folks. You can't do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You got to wear a headset. So that way you can be in two separate places. You can be six feet apart and whisper on the headset. I mean, this is like no liability, man. Like they're eliminating the possibility of, you know, what is it? A droplet. Mm-hmm. 
falling on someone's in someone's nasal passages or on someone's lip. <laughs> so that's why lip. it's gotta be. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's why it's gotta be. You know, thirty six to fifty six pages long. You yeah, know, we we, t- we talked it's about that. We talked about crazy. like it being about liability from the beginning until there was a uh, and vaccine that's that has confidence is you know well made has the confidence of the populace and that Gillette vaccines there it's a it's a liability game there's an image in my head that I can't get rid of which is that it it it's more acceptable to have five or six people with masks on about one foot apart laughing and talking to each other than to have two people 12 feet apart that don't have masks on and oh, that sure. there's an insanity to that but then I also, yep. <laughs> but then I also understand that when you're trying to put every single person under the auspices of one policy, that that you don't have time for these cute exceptions like I just gave you. Uh, you you have to just keep pressing forward the the purpose of 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 the policy and hope everybody just just follows it uh, to a T. But yeah, there's not going to be any liability. And look. If it gives people confidence on set to make uh, and create, then that's wonderful. I mean, I, I got a text message today. I get them all the time from people in town. Hey, Chris, let me know if you know of anything that's filming, anything that's shooting, anybody that needs help. So people are out there. They're, on their, they're, they're getting desperate now. It's, it's we got to get to work. I need work. You know, like if you know of anything that's out there, let me know. I need that work. And if this helps get people to set faster, then that's great. We had a back to set COVID guideline that we created. It is very simple. It is two pages long. But again, we didn't break down yep. the guilds and union requirements. And we sort of broad brushed, right? We, we took all those little things like batteries, sanitizing batteries, and individually bagging walkie-talkies and said, wear gloves. <laughs> Crew should wear yeah, gloves. Basically. And that, that, was, that was the idea there. I guess legally in the best place, you want to be very specific, right? So I think that's what we got. Yeah, it just you know when you have those kind of regulations, you know, you just hope that everyone can can abide by them to the best of their ability. And I emphasize to the best of their ability, right? There's certain things that certain situations that might preclude you know one of these regulations from happening. And I think that people need to be open to that. You know, there has to be flexibilities within 56 pages of requirements, right? So, and I think to a degree, you know, where possible, you know, you need to allow humans to interact the the way that they want to interact uh, within reason, right? You see, you talk about those two people who are 12 feet apart, right? Those two people are 12 feet apart in a field with nobody else, you know, don't fly over top of them and then call the police because they're not wearing masks. I hope not, yes. They're actually doing something better, yeah. Exactly. That's being ridiculous. Like, don't don't go and do that. Now, if someone is, you know, creating an unsafe environment for other people or at least a perception of an unsafe environment, that's, that's different. But, you know, two people decide they want to talk outside, you know, and they're talking without masks and they're, you know, in their corner by themselves. Let them do what they're going to do. Yeah, and there's, you know, that kind of thing. You know that some production is going to do the bait and switch. You're going to say, yeah, we'll go by these guidelines. And then they're not sanitizing the batteries. And all, all it's going to take yep. is one staffer to say, you know what? I was on that set. I didn't see one battery get sanitized. 
and 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 there'll be a whistleblower. A lot of me, part of me thinks because there's so much money on the line that that's what the NFL and the NBA are doing, where anybody that tests positive but is asymptomatic, they just don't even report it. Right. <laughs> it's yep. like, but why oh, report yeah. it? <laughs> why, we're not shutting this down. Why report it? They're not having symptoms. They feel great. We're not reporting it. Um, and then they keep the data. So that's a crazy thing I just accused them of, but it, it, it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me if that's, it doesn't take very many people at the top to collude to do that is my point. We literally take one doctor or two doctors and then the head, the commissioner and one other person. Right. So anyway, call me, a con- call me a conspiracy theorist, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's something I think about. Anyhow, this has been a fun and great conversation as usual, but we would be remiss if we did not bring up the untimely and, and surprising and sudden death of Chadwick Boseman uh, as we wrap up. And to be so young and to, to literally be my age and, and die, um, there's something about mortality. There's something about death that wakes you up a little bit, a little bit more than you were the day before. And whether it be to say, Oh my, my goodness, uh, he looked really healthy. I need to go get my colon check. I need to get colonoscopy or to say, what is it I haven't done? What is it I haven't accomplished that I need to accomplish? Because time truly waits for, for no person. Um, and I think when you see someone so famous, um, and of course you got so much fame from, from black Panther, but so famous, so widely recognized and able to hide his illness and still shoot film. So you weren't seeing sort of the outward, uh, look of illness. Uh, at least we didn't see it on camera and, and he kept it close to the vest. It really makes you think, Oh man, um, time is short. And uh, memento mori, we we you two must die, and, and what are we going to do? So I, I want to say, you know, uh, or what should we be doing with our time that we have left? So I do want to say rest in peace, and uh, and that it was a shock and it was disappointing. He was he was ascending and had been ascending um, as an actor. Nick, you got anything? Yeah, and you know, you know, he was diagnosed in 2016. You know, passed four years later, um, and and kept working. You know, and I think the the one thing that I don't know most I'll, I'll just give it and say most people probably don't realize is, you know, when you become Black Panther, right? Which he did in 2016, right? So he's diagnosed in the same year as he became Black Panther. Who knows which came first? Uh, there's more in your life than just filming when it comes to the work, right? Can you imagine uh, the number of appearances that he did, you know, and I say appearances, it could have been podcasts, television shows, you know, network this, you know, show up to, to this place and do that thing and sign this other thing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. It's a, it's a enormous thing that you can't even fathom. And, you know, you kind of wonder, you know, what makes a person, you know, continue on this journey, um, not just as Black Panther, even though that was, you know, some of the basically the defining role. Uh, but like what makes a person do this when 
basically, I think what we came to learn is, is fighting for his life, you know, and, um, you know, you look at the, the filmography between 2016 and 2020, and you see that, you know, not only did he portray Black Panther, who I believe it was the first, um, what do you say, uh, character that had an African background, uh, in the Marvel comics. So again, this is, you know, a tremendous honor. Uh, but he also played uh, Thurgood Marshall yes. right during that period of time. Um, I think the, the Jackie Robinson, I think that was around, you know, between 2016 and 2020 as well. I know 2014 was, um, James Brown, but you know, you have Black Panther, you've got, you know, Thurgood Marshall, you've got Jackie Robinson, and you got some pretty significant roles, um, you know, that are significant to the global community, but to the African American community specifically. And, you know, I don't know if we'll ever actually learn the details or the truth of it. Uh, but I wonder if there was something else behind his desire to continue and push forward, even, you know, I have to believe that he had hope in his heart. Um, but I also know that, you know, uh, having passed, just recently, he had to have also known how dire the situation was. Yeah. Right. The doctors would have told him and his family, you know, what was happening. So I think knowing that, like you said, like if time is short, then what are you doing with it? And part of me wants to believe that, you know, he knew potentially the imminence of this and decided to portray certain roles that he believed would be impactful, you know, to the community at large and potentially to the community of, uh, of African Americans. So, yeah, it's 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 sad to see uh, to see him go, um, and again, I hope that um, he was able to do the thing or the things between 2016 and 2020 that his uh, his heart wanted him to do, and that he left the world, um, of course, not not that happy in leaving, but fulfilled in what he was able to accomplish. Yeah, and accomplished so much in such a short period of time. And against a lot of obstacles, I'm sure. And the cool thing about the roles he picked is they are roles that will keep him and his legacy alive probably forever because For people sure. will always want to learn about those people. And film is such a big you know, part of how you learn about historical figures. So again, rest in peace to Chad, Chad Bozeman and um, hope you're in a better place. And uh, we enjoyed everything you did while you were here. Uh, and Nick, that will wrap us on another Indie Talk week. This was this was a blast as usual. Yeah, man. It's Like I said, it's good to be back. It's always good to be back. Um, talking to you, talking to people out there who are listening. Uh, we are, you know, so grateful for the folks who are listening out there and giving us thumbs up and, you know, sending us questions and, and just, you know, letting us know that, that we're doing a thing, you know, that our heart has told us that we need to do and that it is providing value to the community and the community is being part of this and, and helping push us forward. It's, it's great, man. That's why it's, like I said, every time I sit in the chair and have the conversation with you, it's, uh, it's awesome. It's a great experience. Yeah, and we, we've been really blessed this year. A lot of friends have told a lot of friends about this podcast. So we're very happy that, um, our audience is enjoying what we're doing and, and telling people about it. Uh, speaking of telling us about it, uh, to find more information about, uh, you know, 
everything we talk about here and to get more insight into who we are, you can visit our website at www.bonsai.film. Social media, you can follow us there on Instagram, on Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative. And you can also find us on Facebook simply by searching for Bonsai Creative and we'll come right up. If you have comments, questions, concerns about any of our podcasts, not just this indie talk, you can reach out to us at contact at bonsai.film. Uh, that's an, uh, our email there. You can email us those thoughts or you can even DM us on Twitter and the aforementioned Instagram accounts at underscore uh, Bonsai Creative. And so, Nick, with that, do me the biggest favor in the world and give us the Bonsai Credo. Uh, yes, sir. So, yeah, it's all our folks out there, all of our would-be fans out there, all of our would-be friends. Uh, we just have to say, you know, be better, be creative, and be engaged. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with more great indie film content. Nick, talk to you soon. Yes, sir. All right, brother. All right, man. Take it easy. You too. Peace. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.